0: Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today, we talk to Jeremy Fischel, who is a roboticist, haptician, founder of Tangible Research, and co-founder and former CTO of Syntouch. We talk about a new device that Jeremy's helped create with the Converge Robotics Group, which is a group of several companies that came together to create a device called the Tactile Telerobot. It's interesting because it combines many different technologies to let you have the experience of controlling a robotic hand from a distance, picking things up, moving things around, and feeling what the hand feels. So actually feeling the objects through the hand in an intuitive way. The device has been on tour and I got to try it at CES. It was truly amazing. So as we discussed this idea of teleoperating robots, that brings us around to talking about the sense of touch and how it evolved, biomimicry, in robotics, the tactile internet, the need for tactile intelligence in AI, and finally the ANA Avatar X Prize. So, without further ado, Jeremy Fishel. How's it going? Good. Oh my gosh, you're having a very nice like voiceover microphone there. This is going to be awesome. Yeah,
1: it's got like a tape on the stand to hold it together, but. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think- it's been a long time since I've done any kind of recording. So yeah,
0: I used to do a lot of it and um, I didn't for many years. And then I got back into it. Actually, it's interesting how much the equipment has changed, you know?
1: Yeah, that's true. And any kind of technology, I don't know if you do much prototyping, but even when we were doing my PhD, I remember how expensive and difficult it was just to like record an analog signal. And now you've got pies and arduinos and it's like 10 bucks so it's it's not fair but it's also awesome
0: yeah no totally when i was working on um sensors for music i had to look at the usb specification yeah you know to sample a sensor and now my boys are eight years old are using arduinos and
1: raspberry Pis and things like that so those are legit amazing cheap technologies yeah so
0: Cool. So I'm glad we're finally doing this. Yeah. Maybe we could start by just providing a little bit about your background and your research at USC and then SynTouch and what you're working on more recently.
1: Yeah. So my background's been largely in understanding how the human sense of touch works, making robotic sensors that can replicate those capabilities and then applying it in research. So. Through my PhD studies and early work in Syntouch, which is a company I co-founded back in 2008, uh, we started making these really advanced tactile sensors called the BioTac. And these are great sensors. They could sense forces, vibrations, and temperature just like your fingertips can. And through making that sensor, which we made commercially available to the research world, we started finding a need as a business to find applications to that technology. So one of the first applications that really honed in on at Syntouch, which is uh, material characterization, where we could poke and slide on the surface and record what that surface feels like and characterize it on 15 different dimensions that relate to human perception. Uh, and that's work that Syntouch is focusing on right now and are successfully commercializing. More recently, in the last year or two, I've now branched out and started a new company called Tangible Research which is now looking at the broader applications of touch and robotics. Specifically, we're looking at how we can create telerobots with high fidelity haptic information being fed back to the operator. And that's the focus of tangible research. And we've recently partnered with two uh, other companies, Shadow Robot Company and Haptex, in a group that we call the Converge Robotics Group. We're partnering to make this tactile telerobot a reality.
0: Awesome. Wait, so backing up to Sintouch for a minute, just to explain. So object characterization, sometimes when I've heard it explained, I've heard Sintouch being compared to Pantone for colors, right? Like SinTouch is the Pantone of haptics. So you're able to use this. It's a sensor. It's a little green sensor and it looks almost like a fingertip and you're able to apply it to an object and characterize its surface features, not necessarily its shape, but what the material is and what it would... Th- Maybe not in the material, actually. It's really just what it would feel like to touch it, right? Is that kind of how that works?
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, the Pantone is a great analogy because we like to think of what Syntouch is measuring is like the color of touch. So we're independent of the geometry and the shape, but what's its tactile color, for lack of better words? You know, how rough is it? What are the friction properties like? How does it deform its thermal properties? And What we've done at Syntouch and through my doctoral thesis is we designed a set of exploratory movements. So, this is actually the touch and the movements are so interrelated Mm -hmm. in understanding what something feels like. I mean, if you don't move at all, you don't feel anything. Mm -hmm. If you push with too much force when you're sliding, it changes the characteristics of what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And what we see in people is it seems as they evolve over their lifetimes, they sort of hone in on a optimal and discrete set of movements that they use when identifying objects by touch and it's sort of your movements that you use and forces of velocities might be different than mine but they're fairly consistent for you over and over again because that's your control in trying to sense what's different with the object you're sensing so right. we design uh, similarly with touch. so the BioTek sensor. biotech is this high fidelity tactile sensor that we just described. There's also a full instrument that controls the forces and sliding velocities in a very repeatable manner while we're measuring vibrations and forces and temperature changes in the sensor to quantify what that surface feels like. And and it's, again, it's like this Pantone model. We've got these 15 dimensions, that are inspired from the language people use to describe touch, like roughness and slippery and grippy and friction and warm and cool. Uh, it's inspired by that, but also backed in a little bit of the neuroscience. We, we then say, how how would a human brain get a rough signal into their body? And we've there's a lot of le- literature showing that it's driven from vibrations. So, we look at the vibrations coming from our sensor and filter it in a way that it's reliably producing this roughness that relates to human perception. Where it differs from Pantone is Pantone was created as an industry standard to define a color for when you go to the print shop, they reproduce that color reliably. And we don't necessarily have the technologies to replicate a texture that same way today. Hmm. Maybe one day in the future, but most of our clients at Syntouch are largely using this instrument to quantify the way their surfaces feel and then comparing that to a design standard as they iterate and improve or do quality control on their products.
0: Okay, there's but there is kind of like this library of feels that you've generated, right? Yeah. How would you kind of browse
1: through it and choose a material for a product? Yeah, we've been, that's been going back and forth uh, with this concept of having a database and do we make it commercially available? Do we make it publicly available? Those questions are being asked all the time with Syntouch. I think one day it would be excellent. So we've quantified thousands of surfaces and certainly that database would be accompanied very well with actual surfaces. So if we could say, here's a bunch of surfaces and here's their properties, Mm -hmm. maybe we could do that with 10, 20, 50 surfaces and have that available as a reference set. Mm -hmm. But what we find is there's, Really a lot of nuance to touch and we can't get that convenient. If you've ever seen one of those Pantone card decks, these little flip things, yeah. we can't get that compact and economical and reproducing something similarly. Oh, okay. The other challenge that's faced at Sintouch is a lot of the data that our customers are collecting is proprietary to them. An automotive manufacturer would be characterizing dashboards that maybe are economically viable but don't feel like quote unquote cheap. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily want their competitors to know about that information. So they do try to keep that proprietary. Mm. We did a study funded by the NSF with 500 different surfaces. And we've talked about making that database available to the public. And we even shared it with a few research groups that are looking at taking that data one step further. So it is something that's accessible. If you email me, I could probably try to track it down for you.
0: Cool. (laughs) No, that's interesting. So you've been focused on the fingertips since your grad school days. Yeah. And now you're moving up into the hand and arms, it says. Yeah. With Converge. So why the change? I mean, they're very different worlds, right? You have, Mm -hmm. in Syntouch, you're doing like object characterization, and now you're moving towards teleoperation. Actually, could you explain what teleoperation
1: is and then why you chose to pursue that? Yeah. And so teleoperation is an old... Old, old field. In fact, I don't like the name teleoperation. I very much welcome new words for this because it sounds like telephone, which already feels ancient today (laughs) because that's how fast technology moves. But the concept of teleoperation, specifically telemanipulation, is you know the ability to not just observe and interact at a distance, but to physically manipulate your environment at a distance. And you and I can have a phone call or a video chat, and we're communicating with one another and you're you're down in Los Angeles, I'm north in Chico, and it's pretty seamless as if you're in front of me, but I can't reach out and grab something or uh, physically interact with anything on your side. So, telemanipulation is essentially trying to do just that. How do I interact with an environment that's at a distance?
0: Mm -hmm. And so, why the change?
1: Why pursue that now? So, I think for me, a lot of things came together at the right time. It seems like a lot of my life decisions tend to be driven just by what's going on around me and recognizing like, Oh, this is a good time to do this now. Mm. I mean, I even got into tactile sensing. I was really interested in neuroscience in my grad school. And then I realized that everyone's interested in neuroscience and it would be impossible to try to, you know, make a mark on that field. And then we said, Hey, look, this tactile sensing, no one's doing it. Uh, We've got some great ideas. We think we can make an impact. And I think we did that successfully. Mm -hmm. You know, we did this study on, Mostly, to be honest with you, this material characterization study was based on the AI. We published a whole paper. I'm like, look at this AI that we did that can identify textures better than people. And then all these companies started calling us and saying, wait, you have this instrument that can do this. And Sintouch's whole focus shifted to building and commercializing that. And for me, once that turned from a research problem to an engineering problem where there were part numbers and uh, shipping logistics and documentation. I, I started losing some interest. We had some great people that took that over and my mind started wandering again. Um, I'd been talking to Rich Walker, who's uh, managing director at Shadow Robot Company for quite a long time. We've been friends for more than a decade. And we've always been talking about, yeah, you guys make a great anthropomorphic hand at Shadow Robot Company. Syntouch makes these great anthropomorphic biomimetic tactile sensors. Like, We just need a good glove and then we com- complete this telerobotics system. Hmm. I searched around for all kinds of partners in that relationship, and, and most of the technology wasn't too great until we found Haptex. And we said, you know, this is all making sense. We should all put these together and focus on building teleoperation. But really, like the big catalyst for a lot of it was just seeing the progress made in VR and how fast VR is advancing. Hmm. It was just like something is going to happen on the human side. The technology is progressing so fast, and we wanted to be there when the whole system was ready for teleoperation.
0: So what are the components again? So you have, you had this nice little diagram on the internet. Could you just walk through like the different modules of the system and converge?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of hardware components that go into the system. The active partners are Shadow Robot Company that makes the anthropomorphic hands, uh, Haptics, which makes the haptic gloves and tangible research, which uh, Kelsey, one of my colleagues in Tangible came up with the best definition for it. Tangible focuses on integrating hardware and companies to make all this happen. So getting all these guys to work together is Mm -hmm. a big challenge. Uh, We also have hardware from Syntouch, the biotech sensor, which is my former company that I still have great relationships with. Mm -hmm. It's a really advanced tactile sensor that can replicate everything your finger can. Uh, Then we also have universal robots arms, which are pretty popular. cobot, six degree of freedom. Like 10 kilograms of payload per each arm. They've been pretty successful. And then there's also HTC Vives that track the motion of the operator's arms. So the system's connected like this. We've got data from the tactile sensors being replayed in the haptic gloves so the operator can feel what's being touched. We've got motion captured from the haptics gloves driving the motion of the shadow hand, which is also anthropomorphic, can reproduce these movements quite readily. The tactile sensors are integrated onto the hands mechanically and electrically. We also have HTC Vive trackers that track the motion of the operator's arm in space, Mm -hmm. and that data is used to drive the UR arms position. So ultimately you've got these robotic arms that you can move around in space like your arms. The hands faithfully reproduce your movements. And you could feel some of that tactile data that they're capturing.
0: So, yeah, and I've used it. So just to explain, like, from my perspective, you put your hand in a glove, there's a robot hand somewhere else close by on a robotic arm, but there's no like body to the robot. It's just an arm with a hand. And when you put your arm in this glove, you move your arm, the robot arm moves, you can pick up an object and when you pick it up, your fingers feel like you're touching something with force feedback. It stops your fingers from moving. And because of the biotech sensors in the fingertips of the robotic hand, your fingertips actually feel like your skin is moving and depressing based on what you're touching, right? Yeah. So I tried it at CES, and thank you so much for that opportunity, by the way. There was a huge crowd. <laughs> and uh, I walked in and you're like, Dave's got to try it. So thank you so much. It was amazing. It, it was fascinating because one of the things I noticed was that I was trying to evaluate it in terms of the haptics and what am I feeling? And it was hard to do because it was so transparent. It was almost like I was focused on the task. You had us stacking cups and manipulating toys and doing these basic manipulation tasks to show that you actually can control this robotic arm in a way that you couldn't without the haptic feedback. And I was so focused on the tasks, and I was able to do them. I was able to stack the cups and everything. And then afterwards, I was thinking, wait, what did I just feel? Like, it, it was almost like so transparent that I couldn't really separate out the haptics from the gestures, from the robot, from my hand. It was all just mushed together. And, and that's what telepresence should be, right? It should be, it should be totally transparent. You shouldn't feel like you're controlling a machine. You should just feel like you're there. And, and I thought that that was really well achieved. So
1: Thank you. Yeah, there has been a lot of hard work for some great people to try to make that as transparent as possible. We've got enough of the background in the neuroscience to understand what's relevant. But the goal is to get the fidelity up. We want it to feel more and more like your hands so that it does become transparent. Just like, you know, the way you could have a conversation on the phone, your brain's not processing this unique sound. Right. It's just it feels like you're having a conversation. And, and you know, it's, it's not as clear but it still comes across as a conversation that's easy to interpret as if we totally. were in this room.
0: It would be like if I went and explained what we did this morning, I wouldn't say I had a conversation with a video of Jeremy. I would just say I had yeah. a conversation with Jeremy because the technology is so transparent. Exactly. So one of the things I noticed, I was reading up about how the glove and the robot works, and it seems like you are modeling cutaneous touch as well as proprioceptive touch. Could you unpack that? Like, what are the two different types of touch? And then... Within them, how is the system modeling the components of them?
1: It's a great question, and normally I have a great slide to accompany the visual of this. The way you could explain touch, it's kind of broken down into two different categories. You've got cutaneous touch, which are the sensors and receptors inside your skin, and proprioceptive touch, which more is the receptors inside your musculoskeletal system. So... Cutaneous touch, you've got a lot of different ways to sense where you're being touched, pressure distributions in the normal direction, being able to separate out one or two points of contact. Uh, you also can sense skin stretch, which is very important in the fingertips where you've got this fingernail that pins your skin in place. So any shear forces applied to the finger actually results in stretch around the nail base. Mm. And this is actually how you set shear forces in your fingers. Uh, and wh- Sorry. And why is that important? Shear forces. Well, it's important for manipulation and and there's a lot of, the body's notorious for getting, you know, five or six useful things out of every bodily feature. Mm. So fingernails, a lot of people think they evolve from claws and, and that's certainly good for fighting and, and any kind of self-defense perhaps, but also having those fingernails in the fingertip, that's what causes your skin pads to stretch when you apply a shear force. So if you do a little experiment where you hold your finger in front of you, and you push on your finger pad laterally, you could see the skin stretching uh, and bulging on opposite sides of your fingernail. And you've got these great receptors around the base of the nail that pick that up and encode that as, hey, I'm feeling a shear force on my finger. And that could be important for picking things up or passing them between hands or knowing if someone's trying to take something out of your hand. Really important stuff. There's also uh, the the other modalities we could sense vibrations that arise when you slide your fingers over different textures to characterize them, or if an object slipping from your grasp, it produces vibrations, or if you're using a tool, you usually feel the vibrations through the tool. And then there's also thermal information to know if objects are warmer or cool, or even have like high thermal conductivity, like a block of metal. And a block of wood that have been sitting out all day in the same room at the same temperature, but metal feels cooler because it pulls your body heat away, which is typically higher than the environment, at a greater rate. So metal feels cooler than a block of wood, even though they could be the same temperature. So all of that's integrated in cutaneous touch. There's also pain receptors that can sense damage, you know, cuts and burning in there that we haven't really focused on replicating in the tactile sensor. And, and I think one of the many reasons body senses pain is to minimize damage. Like you want to retract your hand before further damage is done. And unfortunately, with technology, if you've got a little cut in the sensor, it's damaged. It's not going to repair itself faster or more economically it's damages damage in that case
0: yeah actually but just a note on that is um when i tried the demo at ces one of the things that i was told by the people giving the demo was be careful don't move the hand like this or like that because you'll damage the robot yeah if you had pain feedback in the glove you wouldn't <laughs> have to say that because the person
1: would just not do that <laughs> that's, that's true i think we <laughs> I, I don't know what our insurance covers for these things but yeah <laughs> This is very true. And it's exactly how people learn. And I think maybe you feel like if you burned your hand on the stove, there's not really anyone to blame there. I think with the Telerobot, we might get uh, an unfair share of that blame. For people that use the hardware and they own the hardware and they damage it, they do have a pain pathway because they're the one who has to write a check for repairs. (laughs) It's a slower feedback cycle. (laughs) There is pain though. It's still there indirectly. Um, oh, and and the uh, proprioceptive touch I didn't get to. So you've got receptors inside the muscles and tendons and your musculoskeletal system that gives you a sense of position and force feedback. So this is how you know where your arm is in space and how much force your muscles are exerting. Mm-hmm. So proprioceptive and cutaneous touch all come together into what normal people would call touch.
0: And so in the robot, the proprioceptive model is in the fingers. Is there also something in the arm or or not yet?
1: Um, we we certainly the arm does have the ability to capture its position and a lot of force measurements in arms has to do with motor current being sensed, um, and that's used as a safety measure. For example, if we sense too much current in the arms, it means we could have collided with something, and it'll go into a safety shutdown sequence. It's it's very common. We do sense position, but we don't have any way to relay that information back to the operator. Mm-hmm. But in the hands, we do. So we do have the shadow dexterous hands have position encoders, strain sensors on all of the tendons, as well as motor currents for every single joint. Uh, And that can replicate a lot of the proprioceptive information. And we can measure that directly in the shadow hand, and that can be replayed back through the haptics glove through these uh, tendons that effectively act like brakes and it prevents your fingertips from advancing. So if we see the force in the fingertip over a threshold, we'll prevent the operator's finger in the glove from advancing further. It's a passive force feedback in the glove, which gets around a whole bunch of the feedback and instability problems. If the gloves were actually applying force, there's a well-known instability problems in telerobots. And this is one of the main reasons you don't see any force feedback on like a, a da Vinci surgical robot, for example, because the last thing you want to do is have some unstable feedback cycle vibrating and chopping things up inside the body
0: yeah so thinking more about teleoperation, operation like why you would want this you have some great stories about how we need the sense of touch to perform certain tasks there is that match
1: lighting use case could you explain that a little bit yeah so this is work from roland johansson so anyone who knows about the sense of touch is familiar with Roland Johansson, who's done just a tremendous amount of work understanding all the receptors, cutaneous receptors in the skin and characterizing what they're sensitive to, vibrations and forces and the receptive fields and response times and bandwidth. Great work there. And Roland, who's actually a co-inventor of the biotech, in fact, another good side story, Hmm. did this great research on studying how touch is used in a whole suite of dexterous tasks. A lot of people are familiar with the slip control where uh, they're looking at recording slip-related vibrations and how people respond to that information. But another great video that highlights the importance of touch Roland's done is this. He's done a lot of work with anesthesia. So what's really interesting about the hand is the vast majority of muscles that control your hand are actually up in your forearm because there's a lot of tendons all over your hands. You do have a big fat one by your muscle, but most of the muscles are in your forearm controlling your hips. So what that allows you to do is you've got physical separation from all the nerves that are innervating the fingertips and the muscles. So they can apply anesthesia to effectively block your cutaneous touch, but still maintain your ability to control and even have some of that proprioceptive feedback in the hand without Mm -hmm. any interference. So uh, Roland did this great experiment where a subject essentially picks up a little match out of a matchbox and lights it on a, a matchbox that's sort of arranged vertically and taped down with a light strip right on top. Mm-hmm. So they do that. It, it takes two, three seconds, just like anyone would expect to pick up a wooden match out of a matchbox and strike it on a strike surface. Mm-hmm. Then they apply anesthesia to the fingertips to block all the cutaneous pathways to the thumb and forefinger. All the muscles are still there, all the ability to form shapes and all of that information still available to the body. But the task of picking up and lighting the match becomes very challenging. You know, she's having trouble picking up the match, fumbling around, sort of eventually grabs it. Like you would imagine a, like a claw machine. Like eventually you get lucky uh, when you're fumbling around, Mm -hmm. eventually gets it, but it's in a weird position. And then she's trying to orient the match with the table so that it's in a normal position. Then she struggles with applying the force to strike it. And eventually... What i thought was really interesting is she finds that she develops because our human brains are so amazing she develops this really interesting caging strategy that's totally unnatural where she's grabbing this match in like a weird tripod of fingers in a way that it can't move anymore and then she manages to successfully like the match and it's not natural it's not the two-finger grip you and i would usually use but she successfully does it and big takeaway from that video is Touch doesn't make these impossible tasks possible. It just makes these difficult tasks way more intuitive and fluid and natural. And you know, you react to things quickly and you adjust your strategies and you get great performance.
0: That's interesting because it's related to this idea or question that I keep getting about haptics. Ever since I started in the field, I would get questions from lay people and partners like, what is the killer app? This is a nice to have, but why is it a must have? And in in many use cases, the answer is it's not a must have, it's a nice to have, but it's very nice to have because it makes you feel like a human interacting with a physical object instead of some artificial digital construct. And that's a very difficult thing to explain and to convince people that they should pay for in terms of features and, and things like that. So there's always been this question of what is the killer app for haptics? I don't know that it really is just a nice to have though because your story about the match, Nobody wants to do that. Nobody will be lighting matches with any frequency with if they yeah. you know with a robotic hand if they can't feel that because it will just be too frustrating. I mean, there's of course the Da Vinci robot and surgeons learn how to use that because it's a critical need, but that's not going to reach scale. And so I almost feel like the must-have for haptics is there for it to be able to reach scale and to reach the maximum number of people that it could benefit, even if it's hard to define
1: and hard to explain. There's a great question and and the, the challenge that we've all been facing in haptics. I think um, there was a panel they were trying to put together at an ICRA uh, and it didn't get accepted, but I love the title. They wanted to call the workshop haptics necessity or novelty, mm-hmm. which is like exactly it. It's kind of both. It seems like it's a novelty because you could do all these tasks without touch, but it's so necessary to do it. And I think, the convincing probably requires taking it away from people. Mm-hmm. So if you had it, and let's say we had these advanced telerobots with high fidelity touch, that felt just like your hands. And then you go, then you say, hey, look, well, we could shave off a few thousand bucks, but you don't get any touch. They would probably try that out and then go back to taking the touch because you don't want to lose touch. Mm-hmm. You know, when you anesthetize your hands, you've lost something and you want it back. It's, I think touch is way bigger in loss aversion than it is in... Oh, I get a five, 10% performance boost in it. And intuitive surgical, like the robotic surgery, like this is a great use case of, look, we could train for this lack of critical sensory input, Mm -hmm. but even, and I've heard this anecdote from some people that have been studying haptics and medicine that. A lot of the surgeons that maybe first learned on laparoscopic surgery, which is essentially the robotic surgery, except for you're manually operating the tools with your hands so you could feel some of the forces when you contact stuff, mm-hmm. when they translated to robots operating those tools, so now the operator can't feel, all of the surgeons that initially started on laparoscopic and then translated to robotic surgery, so the older ones, they're still delicately interacting with tissue. Because got this great mind's eye sense of what it's what things should look like but the new ones the younger generations that are just training on the da Vinci robotic surgery tools without any laparoscopic knowledge they tend to be using higher forces and more aggressive with tissues so there's certainly something to be said about touch is a real critical component in the training process Mm -hmm. and without it I think it gets a lot harder to learn these skills I mean if you've ever tried like any sport at all like golf or snowboarding or anything like you could watch videos all day about what to do and know what to do but until you actually do it and feel it it's that's essential right
0: yeah 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 a lot of the demos that are on youtube around dexterous robots have to do the use case that they show is solving a rubik's cube yeah which is a funny thing because it's almost becoming like the hello world of Dexterous manipulation. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because it, sure. cubing is, it's very visual, it's very algorithmic. So it's very friendly to AI. And then you have this MVP level need to have a robot be able to turn a cube, but there's not even that many gestures. They're not that rich and it doesn't have much applicability to use cases in real life. So I, I don't know why that's the trend, but it's <laughs> yeah. very common now. <laughs>
1: We think guilty of this too. I mean, you're exactly right. I don't think people are waking up and going, oh gosh, I really wish this Rubik's Cube was solved in a fraction of a second. I don't think people are sinking into depression over this at all. <laughs> this is not causing anyone problems in life. I mean, we used it in our, our Remars talk. This was like in June of last year. Uh, we used that as an example because... I think what that does is it segments planning and dexterity. So mm-hmm. for example, there was at the time an open AI they moved so fast. But at the time, the best they can do is sort of juggle a cube around in their hand. Then you see humans, how quickly we can dexterously solve a Rubik's cube. And there's a great video of Felix Zemdegs who can solve it in a few seconds. It's, it's impressive stuff. Yeah,
0: speed keepers are amazing.
1: Yeah, it's it's mind boggling. And, and again, these guys have algorithms in their head that normal people don't have. There's also been like a lot of great work of robots demonstrating this is just an algorithm. And you see this robot that just essentially has six little spinny arms that grab a Rubik's cube and can solve the whole thing in a quarter of a second because visually it could observe all the locations of the cube, follow a solver, and just run an algorithm forward and solve it faster than anyone ever can. Mm-hmm. And that says a lot to robot strength in algorithms. I mean, robots and computers are always going to outcompute us all day, every day, but You know, one of the great examples, I'll get to one of the great examples, I wanna finish with the cubes. One of the things with the cube, on one hand, it does have this like, wow, this is really impressive, I can't do that. Also like, this is where marketing and applications diverge, like the colors are beautiful. Uh There's these great colors, they take fantastic photos, tangible research is using backdrops with these Rubik's cubes and the robots, It's, it's great. Like at CES, we made a lot of title slides from videos We're on the cover of Wall Street Journal because it's a great picture. Yeah. The colors are beautiful. So there's that. Also, no,
0: and just also it seems like it's something most people don't know how to do. And so it just seems super impressive. It's like a superhuman robot because it can do something that people, like you look at a Rubik's Cube and you don't know how to solve it without training. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right. Like we did need a new test for this. And also OpenAI recently solved a Rubik's Cube with one hand, um, which if you know how to solve a Rubik's Cube, it's very critical, at least for people that are more lay to the process, it's critical that you keep the cube in a particular orientation so the top and the front and the side don't move around so you run through these algorithms to solve it. Yeah. And OpenAI did this one where they're juggling the hand around and solving it with one hand. And that's hard for people to do, normal people, to actually solve the Rubik's Cube when the orientation's evolving.
0: Normal people, not cubers. Yeah.
1: Not cu- cubers have <laughs> some other kind of brain pathways going on there. Yeah. But again, I, I don't think we're speaking to the challenge of dexterity. Cause again, Rubik's cubes is all about algorithms and computers are always going to beat us at algorithms. I think the sentiment that we originally started is, you know, and again, I'm not even good at chess either, but chess is a solved game now for AI type algorithms. Yeah. Like, they could beat any human in the world and maybe at best tie. I don't know. I think whoever goes first wins. I don't remember how the algorithm is solved, but it is a solved game. And what's really interesting about all of this information is that it is infinitely harder for a robot to pick up a chess piece than it is to just demolish you on chess strategy. So we're trying to, we're trying to get to this. You know, okay, we've got these great solvers for optimal chess strategy, but we can't even pick up chess pieces without knocking them over on the board. And touch is the reason why you need that. Mm-hmm. We're looking for examples that can kind of convey that. As far as like actual quantifying performance, which is much less interesting for media and trade shows, we start looking at what's been done for amputees and stroke patients. Mm-hmm. Activities of daily living, like, can you set a dinner table? Can you pack a suitcase? Yeah. Can you pot a plant? These are well-known established measures for for essentially assessing the dexterity for amputees using prosthetic hands. And those tests are trying to get around, how can we actually solve problems? Because no one really cares how quickly you could stack a cup pyramid or move cubes from one box to another. Those can highlight certain attributes to your system, but it doesn't demonstrate that it's actually solved a problem.
0: Yeah so we talked a little bit about how the converged system is a very transparent mapping is there potential for a more explicit mapping to enable people's natural gestures to map to robots that don't have human-like dexterity so they might have you know 20 fingers or you know i don't know uh yeah vines for picking up objects that have. <laughs> what's the potential there?
1: Yeah, there's people interested in this. I'm not one of them. I, I want this system to be like your hands. And the reason for that is you and I and other humans, we've got decades of training and experience on how to use our hands. So, you know, I can pick up a Rubik's cube and move it around. I wouldn't say solve it quickly, but I could spin all the faces without any problem. That's because I know how to use my hands. So, If I had a system that was equivalent to my hands, it would be easy for me to just jump right in and start using it exactly as I would my own hands. Mm -hmm. If I have to do some other new kind of mapping, then it becomes either a mental challenge of like, how do I control all these levers and widgets? Like imagine operating a crane. There's people that can train themselves to do all the stuff and move the boom around and uh, whatnot, but it's not It's not like they hopped into a crane the first day and just started using it. There's a lot of training and mental remapping. And we're trying to sidestep that by being biomimetic.
0: And I guess all of those other things could just be tools that the robotic hand could pick up. Yeah. So if you solve this problem, you've probably solved a lot of different problems because if you can control a tool with the hand, teleoperating the hand, then you can do a lot more than just manipulate with a hand.
1: Yeah, that's a real great point. And that's exactly what you would be doing. But then if you go straight from the hand to the non-anthropomorphic end effector, you've like defined how the tool is being used. So that way they've lost the ability to pick up and reorient the tool. Right, right, right. Because I mean, you could use, you know, a screwdriver from anything, right? The screws, paint cans punching holes in cardboard boxes. I mean, there's many different ways to use a screw. And and that court sort of gives to like the concept of affordances. And human brains are really good with affordances and we'd hate to take that away from them. Can you explain that? What are affordances? Oh, I'm going to do a terrible job at that. <laughs> All right. So for example, if you see... A hammer. What does this hammer afford me to do? Like most people go, yeah, it's great for hitting on a nail. But when I uh, throw out a computer and I like to destroy the hard drives, platters, I'll put them in a bag and smash them up with the hammer. Mm-hmm. I just really needed a heavy object. I could use a rock that could smash something up. Right. I could use a hammer to pull a nail out. Uh, what does this allow me to do? Mm-hmm. importance is this concept of essentially, what can I do with this object? Uh, and that involves a lot of creativity.
0: Well, yeah, that's interesting, too, because it goes back to the mapping, because it also involves having experience with your own body and what you can do with your body. So if you can do a transparent mapping to a robot that is anatomically similar or equivalent to a human, then all the affordances that we identify and recognize around us are also affordances for the system. If the robot has a different scale or different capabilities, then suddenly you need to learn what the what the affordances are for the robot. yeah. And also, you said something really interesting in the Remars talk about um, the question of whether hands are just the ideal manipulators or whether we built the world with hands. And so our human civilization is just ideally manipulated through hands because
1: we have hands. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Which one do you think it is? Is it? I think it's humans are so biologically advanced that it's easy to say, well, we're the best and therefore the way we do it is the best possible way to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty easy and like mostly true because there aren't any opposing demonstrated ways to show that humans aren't doing things in optimized ways. Mm-hmm. But just to highlight that, the question is, is the human hand optimal for picking up everything in an environment or did we design the environment to be optimal with our human hand? And definitely the latter has huge amounts of truth to it. Cause I mean, we're building things to be ergonomic and work well with our hands. So through creating this entire world around us to work with our own bodies, our own bodies become optimal to interact with the world around us. And just, that's right. just how it panned out. Like pens work really well with hands because we designed them to, and, and that could be said for quite literally everything else in our environment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But then we also evolved hands in order to manipulate the natural world. So there's some kind of like feedback loop there, you know, it's interesting. Definitely. I
1: think probably like if you start looking at food that we harvest, uh, I'm sure there's some co-evolving with that too. Yeah. Probably probably more on the plant side because their genetics are like amazingly more complex than human genetics for plants. Really? Well, it's because they can't move. So because oh. plants can't move, their only tool is genetics. So they've evolved very complex genetic strategies because that's literally their only hand they have to play.
0: Wow. Today I learned.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think there's orchids with way more genes than humans have. And wow. they do like pretty complex thing where they'll go shoot a runner into a competing orchid and kill it. And they've got like chemical warfare at a genetic level. It's, it's amazing. <laughs>
0: wow. wow. Yeah, that's cool. So for Converge Robotics, I guess it's the Converge device. Is that how you?
1: Converge Robotics Group. Uh, we call it the tactile telerobot. But we need to hire someone in marketing for that one. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs>
0: All right. So the Converge Robotics Group, would it be safe to say your tagline is your hands anywhere? I think I saw that online. I like that. So it sounds like you're trying to solve the last mile problem of teleoperation, right? Like, okay, so, so some of the use cases, we should probably dive into those. Dangerous environments, environments where humans can't go, is probably one of the first use cases for the tactile telerobot, right?
1: Yeah, I'd say anywhere. So the main applications for telerobots are applications where it's either dangerous to directly put a p- person for example, like nuclear environment, uh, space, inaccessible. For example, uh, mining work. It's just quite difficult to get people down there. Mm. Or uh, again, space becomes quite inaccessible. Or just downright expensive to put people. For example, in, in clean rooms, it's tremendously more expensive to keep a clean room clean if we've got to have people coming in and out, going to the bathroom, shedding skin cells and hair cells and breathing and yeah. coughing. Yeah. It would be much more economical if we could have a telerobot in that space and never have a person go into that room at all, and you could keep the room much cleaner at lower levels. Uh, in fact, perhaps you even could take all the air out of the room, and then there would just be no dust at all. Oh, yeah. So we're looking, generally, it falls into applications where it's expensive through danger and accessibility or other logistical reasons to put people. Mm-hmm. I learned at CES that to dig a mine shaft that's human-safe It's about 100 times more expensive than just digging a hole because of all of the safety measures and people like to breathe and not get (laughs) trapped down there and all of these other things. Wow.
0: So how do you see the tactile telerobot being integrated with locomotive robots or maybe maybe not? Maybe they're just kind of brought by humans and left somewhere and then the area sealed off. Like, how is that going to actually work?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it really is application specific. So we're really looking right now at places where understanding their problem and their challenges and to what extent needing manual dexterity and human intelligence is critical to perform that task. A big one is nuclear decommissioning. So when they break down a nuclear reactor, pretty much the whole thing needs to be cleaned if you've seen Chernobyl, you're aware that storing highly radioactive materials is far more complicated than less radioactive materials. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the nuclear decommissioning is they're sweeping off nuclear dust and putting that small amount in a tin can that gets encased under, you know, many, many feet of concrete and then having less radioactive stuff put in a, know, a metal container or something mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. So they're essentially separating out radioactive material. It's an intrinsically dangerous job that's performed through glove boxes. So if there's a cut in the glove, big things can go wrong, very expensive mistakes. Mm. It's a kind of a thing where, well, let's just stick these robot hands in the box that you would be otherwise sticking your human hands in and then back the human up, you know, just 20, 30 meters at a safe distance uh, and allow them to perform that task with lower risk.
0: Yeah. And and right now, a lot of those use cases are so the latency is low because the person is close by just probably in a, in a more safe or more contained environment than the robot. Yeah. But then you also did the first transatlantic
1: teleoperation a while
0: back. How did that go?
1: With touch. They've done it without touch. But yeah, the first one with haptic feedback, that was pretty exciting. In fact, Wired did a nice piece about that, where they were controlling the robot that's in London from San Francisco office. That was a lot of fun because you're feeling these things and shaking hands all the way across the globe. Latencies start becoming a challenge. The speed of light only goes so fast. Mm -hmm. I think it's like an eighth of a second to get around the whole globe. So best case scenario, if I want to go to the other side of the globe and back, we've got 125 milliseconds of delay. Mm -hmm. And those delays start interfering with natural cognitive and reflexive latencies you have with your body. Mm. Like typically a reflex between maybe your hand and your spinal cord and back, you'd expect from a grasping reflex or a slip detection reflex. That might be like 40 or 50 milliseconds just to get to your spinal cord and back. Something cognitive though, where if I say, hey, when you see this red light, push this button, we have to make a cognitive decision. This is like on the order of 100 to 200 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And when your latencies start interfering on that order, the delay becomes perceptible. Right. Computer mice are super fast. They've got like, I don't know, milliseconds of latency, probably even better than that. Now, you don't notice it. Like you move your computer mouse and your cursor and your screen moves and there's no delay. In fact, we've become so greedy with computer mice that if there is a latency, we start losing our mind if our computer's not opening fast enough. Yeah. That's there with tactile telerobots too. The thing is, I don't think we've expectations to be upset with it. Uh-huh. If I were, if, if like yesterday it was acting just like my hand and all of a sudden there's 200, 300 milliseconds delay, I'd be angry and say, what's going on here with this system? It's not performing well. But given that we've never done it before, mm-hmm. it feels impressive. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm shaking someone's hand in London. What do I have to complain about today? <laughs> right, right,
0: right. But if it's not a long distance, is latency a solved problem for you for local operation? For
1: local operation, there's still some lag control signals nothing moves instantly yeah if you see some of the videos where people are waving their hand the actual hand and the robot hand tend to be out of phase mm-hmm. because we've limited the speeds there's like a damping characteristic to the arms mm-hmm. for safety reasons if you open and close your hand rapidly there's still some delay like about like 50 to 100 milliseconds depending on the application just from the mechanics of the system like the actual communications less than a millisecond but things have to move enough to be sensed. And then the actuators have to actually start moving like all of those delays are in there.
0: Yeah. 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 And now there's all this hype about the tactile internet and how 5g and other convergent technologies are going to enable you to, well, there's this idea of the internet of skills, right? So that you'll be able to distribute skills across the globe. And I think teleoperation is obviously a key part of that story, but it's, it sounds like from you and from other sources I'm reading that's a little bit of an overpromise, just because of the latency issue and the inherent limitation of the speed of light. Would that be your take?
1: Yeah, that's what I got. I've read about the tactile internet, and you know this concept of like sub milliseconds, and I just it's not possible. Like light only moves so fast, and this is a natural limitation.
0: Yeah. Well, part of the idea is we're going to have this smart edge where um, you're going to use AI so that a lot of problems will be solved locally like towers will have cpu power that will be able to be devoted to certain tasks and that there's going to be some kind of cascading network type of thing so it's not going to be so centralized it's more like you're going to move further and further away to further and further away towers only for like the software that you need and a lot of the software will be pushed to the edge that wasn't very well explained but it-
1: <laughs> no, i got it no I, I agree with you that's the best way to do it
0: yeah but i mean is there a way to leverage that for teleoperation
1: yes i i try not to get as futurist i guess with some of these concepts but absolutely like if you even just look at the biology so i mean you've got your brain that's doing high level things like oh pick up that pen open the door and effectively via doing that and this is great work from my phd advisor jerry lobe and his student george cianos uh, where they've really looked at the spinal cord isn't just a cable going from your brain to your muscles it's doing a tremendous amount of smart stuff there's reflexes and reflexive behaviors being turned on and off by your brain all the time so for example have you ever seen this example where if you're holding a hoppy cup with one hand and i extend my arm with the other hand if you pull my extended hand I will like reflexively draw the coffee cup in so it doesn't spill. But if I instead put that hand on a table and you pull my other hand, I'll reflexively push my hand to prevent motion. And like this is happening on a reflex level by your spinal cord and your brain saying, okay, you're holding onto a coffee cup. Let's load in all the coffee cup programs into my spinal cord so that it could do reflexive things to not spill coffee, which is, sad that we've evolved <laughs> all <of> these behaviors <laughs> to hold coffee, but it, this is ex- effectively what our brains and spinal cord are doing. Yeah. So conceptually, like it would be a, completely appropriate to move all that spinal cord reflexive behavior locally to the robot. And that's a great strategy to managing latency where you could say, Hey, pick that phone up. That's the high level command. And then everything lower level has to solve that. Mm. I'm less optimistic of those problems being solved And I think it's mostly the media. I wouldn't say it's the people developing the AI, but it gets really overhyped in its capabilities. Like Udaya Pearl, who's like one of my favorite people, who's studied a lot about causal uh, cause and effect, Mm -hmm. that kind of intelligence, causal based intelligence where, We're not just associative-based intelligence. Like a lot of AI is associative intelligence, like pattern matching. Like when I see this pattern, here's the classification. And they they can't really distinguish between that classification resulting in this pattern and that pattern causing the classification. Like a great example Udea Pearl always uses is let's say I have a barometer that's measuring atmospheric pressure. Obviously, the outside weather is going to affect the pressure sensor, but if I like I don't know, screw with a sensor to change the pressure. It does nothing to affect the outside weather. Right. Right. So like understanding all these causal associations of what actually affects one another is like a whole different level of AI that really needs to be achieved before these systems can really be intelligent. Otherwise, they're just sort of glorified pattern recognition, just like the Rubik's Cube. We're amazed that the robot can do it but it's just an algorithm and it's really not that complicated right right, it just looks impressive because we can't do that and same with beating us at chess like computers can kick our butts at chess all day but they can't set a chessboard faster than a two-year-old can yeah so we still have some advantages in a lot of spaces that's interesting and and this idea of
0: causality in ai it seems like maybe that would help ai become intuitive when we talk about intuition, we're expressing the idea that we can sense a causal relationship that we can't articulate. Yeah. And so maybe that's kind of where AI will become a lot more useful to us and a lot more human-like is when they start to be able to make those connections and maybe even under their conscious awareness, you know, maybe maybe the AI will start to develop intuition about things that wasn't explicitly
1: programmed. Yeah. And I've got to actually, now that I think about it, this like totally ties back into touch and I don't want to turn this into a two-part series, but no, let's do it. <laughs> <don't> know, yeah. <laughs> no, so, so cause and effect. And this is like what initially got me excited about our PhD thesis in material classification, just to bring it all the way back. Mm-hmm. This cause and effect intelligence. I make an exploratory movement and that causes information for me to be sent and understanding that information and This is way more important for touch than it is for vision. Vision is like a a planning sense. Like Mm -hmm. you see the world, you make a plan, you execute that plan. Even like self-driving cars, like they're really just observing the environment, making a plan and executing it. They're not physically interacting with the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if a self-driving car is interacting with the world, something's gone wrong, like they've crashed or something, Mm -hmm. but for touch... That physical interaction and like understanding how each finger movement is going to affect each sensory information or how the sensory information relays information about how I'm holding this object and what I might need to do, so much more important for the interactive sense of touch. Cause like vision's a planning sense and touch is an interactive sense. Mm. And this cause and effect AI is going to become infinitely more important once we start integrating the sense of touch into robotics. And actually this
0: intelligence around movement may help the visual component of AI too. I'm reminded of James Gibson developed in the mid 20th century, the ecological model of perception, right? And this is the idea that like, really the way we see is by moving our head and moving our bodies around objects. I think one of the examples he gives is if you have a picture of a tomato on a table, the reason you know that's an entire tomato and not half a tomato is because you can move around the tomato and look at it, or you could pick it up and turn it. And that's how you gain that knowledge. The visual is not good enough by itself. You have to have a body in order to interpret visual data to make it meaningful to people. Absolutely. Yeah, I think is the difference between just passively observing the world and interacting with the world. Yeah, yeah. And today, AI classification has to do with giant data sets of pictures, right? Yeah. But that's not those photographs, those images. I mean, it's useful to know what's in those images. Because then we can present the right images to the right people or like put
1: them in the right place. But it's not really a visual intelligence the way that we have it. Yeah, we've got all these smart people working in AI and big companies that are just dedicating their brains to better advertisement. And it's sad. (laughs) If anyone's listening to this, please come over and do something meaningful uh, with your big brains. Because you guys are smart people and we need you to solve real problems.
0: Respect. (laughs) So is the, the tactile telerobot an MVP?
1: Yeah, it's like a proof of concept. Like I was recently reading a book about Bell Labs, which is like, if I was born in that time frame, I'd have loved to work there. I think that would have fit exactly what I want to do. But they were talking about how the video phone was created, and they were saying it was less of an innovation and more of an elegant melding of existing technologies. Right which I think is what we've done. We've beautifully put together these pre-existing products in a very elegant way that's simplistic and it's an excellent proof of concept that we could start using to show, hey, this is coming. What are your problems? We want to understand them because we're going to start solving someone's problems soon mm-hmm. and we want to know what they are. So it's a great proof of concept. As far as a product, I think it belongs more in research labs that are studying this problem in greater depth. I don't think you're going to see them deployed in the field immediately unless there's a huge problem that just can't wait for that technology to refine to a product, mm-hmm. but we're getting there. And, and a, an important part of getting to an MVP is understanding the market. So we're at that phase where we get at the table now in a lot of meetings, look at this great stuff we've done. Let's talk about your problems, integrate your problems into the next cycle of development so that we can get closer to an actual MVP.
0: Yeah. What would be the biggest problem that would prompt somebody to use a
1: tactile telerobot today. It's just again dangerous and expensive to put people in that yeah. place. You want to show someone that they always in entrepreneurship, it's always like the 10x. Show them that it's 10 times cheaper, mm-hmm. 10 times safer, 10 times faster. You know, if I could save a lot of travel time by having a, a telerobot somewhere, then it's very attractive. If I could save a lot of cost because of all the safety concerns from radioactive, it becomes attractive or Cheaper, right? So, if like spacewalks are tremendously expensive with people, if I could save some money, yeah, it's money.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spacewalks would you have to have the operator in the spacecraft or could you teleoperate from Earth?
1: Good question. And that's just it's an economic thing because you almost can understand how much slower. The operator will be just from the latency alone. Let's just say where everything's cognitive and there's 200 milliseconds of natural cognitive latency in humans. If we have an additional 200 milliseconds of delay and everything else is perfect, we'd expect the operator to go half a slow. If, you know, adding in, I don't know how far it is to the moon, let's say it's like a few seconds. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's, I only go a tenth of the speed if I'm teleoperating at the moon. Uh, or like the space station, maybe it's uh, maybe it's five times slower, but it's only two times slower if it's on the space station.
0: These are right, right, kind of right. economic
1: decisions. Right,
0: but then it also changes the interaction because you would have to use the real-time tactile feedback in a different way. It would be like an asynchronous tactile feedback. You'd be like, oh, I feel that that's there. Yeah. But I know that the robot felt that that was there a few seconds ago, so now I do a gesture. And it just kind of becomes this this slow motion. But not only slow motion, but like asynchronous pattern of gestures and
1: feedback. Yeah. And I think, interestingly enough, people, roboticists, anyone who's worked with technology, yeah. I've seen some people not do this, but most people that are pretty savvy about the cost of the robot, they tend to move slower proportional to the latency. Like You don't move quickly because you know you need time to process the information. It's a very natural, unconscious thing that happens as you actually move slower when there's more latency.
0: Wow. So you mentioned space and you just did this talk six months ago or so at ReMars, which is this Amazon conference. Yeah. And I looked it up and I was like, oh, cool. ReMars. It's all about Mars. It's actually not about Mars. No. (laughs) (laughs) But it's but it's orange and red in it's branding. And so I'm very confused. So are they gesturing at technologies that will eventually be useful for Mars. Are they not saying that? Or like, what's... what's no, it's op- an
1: acronym. It, yeah, it yeah, stands yeah, for no, machine learning, AI, robotics, and space. So I guess Mars is a small component of that space. Okay. So it's, I don't know, one-tenth about Mars. Maybe I don't know if you want to divide them. <laughs> okay, okay. Mars and its space. But it does, it is directed at high technology, uh-huh. R&D in those categories. So robotics and AI, machine learning. Space is probably the odd man out on that. Again, all of these things are gonna be necessary for space exploration. I know that's something that um, Jeff Bezos is big on, of course, and a lot of other these tech giants.
0: And he's also an alpha tester of the tactile telerobot, right?
1: Yeah, that was quite an experience. How did that go? Uh, They came by and they brought us this uh, hand sanitizer and they said, everyone use hand sanitizer, which makes sense when you think about how much he costs to be sick. And don't go anywhere from five to six. You don't have anything more important to do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone got all sanitized. And then, of course, he came a little bit late. And he had his entourage with him. Uh, and it was really fun, though. He's a great personality, easy to get along with, very personable, made all the same Rubik's Cube jokes that we all make about, I can't solve that. And uh, big, he's got that characteristic laugh that's quite loud. Yeah. But it, it was a lot of fun. He had. It was a funny story about that is he had, a, of course, he's got security guards with him. And we had a safety fence set up around the Telerobot so no one bumps into the Vive trackers. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you bump into the Vive trackers, we got to recalibrate, the demo's over, and he's yeah. gone. Yeah, one of his security guards decides to like step into our rope and I'm not a tall guy. I'm like five, seven or something. And there's a big security guard comes in and I like yelled at him. I'm like, no, get out. And, and he jumped back. Like he didn't know how to respond to such a small guy yelling at him to jump away. But it was pretty funny because it would have ruined the demo if he bumped into the tower he was yeah. standing next to.
0: And then what did Jeff Bezos do with the robot? Did he stack cups or what was the demo?
1: Yeah, he did a couple of cup stacks and picking up things and putting it down. Um, given that there was like a lot of media there, he, he didn't want to fumble around or right. do something uh, that would have been embarrassing. So he kind of kept it on the easier side. But, you know, he did the whole squeeze the finger and you could feel that information. He was really impressed with the tactile feedback and he even tweeted about it, which was really oh, cool. cool. Made all of our Twitter accounts get quite popular. That's amazing. <laughs> That's
0: amazing. Yeah. So um, are there any convergent technologies that you see in the next few years that will enable new use cases for the tactile telerobot?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously we want to get better tactile coverage and better reeling of kinesthetic and cutaneous uh, information back to the operator. Mm -hmm. We've got to start thinking about mobility 3D video is a big one. Obviously we need that depth perception. So the demo you saw at CES, we didn't have any cameras set up because you could use your own eyes because the robot was in front of you. Mm -hmm. But we do use 3D video and uh, like stereo cameras. But we want to start solving, you know, maybe how do we get this 3D video from the robot side compressed and efficiently delivered back to the operator so that they could like move their head in the, Space and have that processed on their side rather than having to move a camera on the other side and all oh, this back and forth yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It cause a lot of problems. Okay. Yeah, mostly we're looking at what needs the most improvement. Yeah, yeah. You know, do we need better arms? Do we need stronger hands? Do we need stronger haptic effects? More sensors, better sensors cameras, mobility, a lot of what we actually do is going to be driven by the problems that we're hearing about though.
0: Mm -hmm. So wait, when you say mobility, do you mean putting it on a a locomotive robot?
1: Yeah. I think we're going to need to at least roll around. Um, so maybe you you guys
0: are so good at getting companies to work together. Can we get Boston dynamics in on this? So you can put the spot dog, (laughs) (laughs) you put a hand on the head and it would be, the scariest thing on YouTube for about a week. Yeah. I guarantee. Oh, it. that
1: would probably get uh, the most views ever, right? <laughs> if it operated by a cat, perhaps, and then, you yeah. know, you got those two would be quite a hit. Um, <laughs> I think we'd be too terrified of it falling over. Yeah. At this stage. <laughs> yeah. It depends on how insurance <laughs> views all of this. I mean, Boston Dynamics has done amazing stuff with biologically inspired. Mobility. They're mm-hmm. definitely leading the charge on that. There's also lots of simple mobile platforms that can drive and roll around on places, especially on level ground. Yeah. Walking comes with an intrinsic risk of falling mm-hmm. and it takes power to stand up. They can't just stand up without and shut down oh, the power. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, when you think about mobility, you also got to think about batteries So like a walking dog that's consuming power, it's gonna run out of batteries eventually. Yeah, yeah. So also a concern. We do have some great friends over at Boston Dynamics and we've talked to them. It would be great to partner with them if anyone over there wants to work (laughs) with us. So Converge Robotics Group, it's our three companies right now, but we're welcoming any partners that have enabling technology. Um, And in many ways we've showcased the capabilities of our technology just by doing this and that was successful. But we also are looking for partners that are committed to where this is going and how they can help. Yeah, yeah. So
0: ANA is part of the Converge Robotics Group, right?
1: Uh, ANA sponsored a lot of the work that we did.
0: Okay, but they're an airline. Obviously, that's a little bit out of left field unless you think about it twice. So can you explain why would an airline be interested in tactile teller robots
1: Yeah, it's just a, the common question and it totally makes sense. The reason is on one hand, market share only apparently 6% of the world actually flies. So there's a huge amount of the population that's not using air travel as a vehicle to explore the world. And secondly, if you think about it, airlines are excellent at purchasing really expensive capital equipment and then renting it back to people. Mm. So perhaps they can own just a network of Telerobots distributed around the world and uh, lease out access to people who want to control it. So it makes a lot of sense. Of course, everything has better margins in the airline industry. So right. kind of staying ahead of that step's important for them.
0: And they're sponsoring an X Prize called the Avatar X Prize, And it's really blowing up in my circles. It's funny. I talked to like three or four different people that are involved now just in the last few weeks so what's what's the extent of um your involvement in that
1: i I think that the x prize has catalyzed everything everything we've done and a lot of the activity Mm. just this has been on the tips of people's tongues for so long even even ours like rich and i uh, at shadow have have been talking about doing this for many years Mm -hmm. and the XPRIZE is what catalyzed it for us, too, because we went to the team that was coordinating it from a side and said, hey, I think we could do this now. Let's get a pilot project launched to do it. And they helped us make that possible. So they've been a huge catalyst in driving this and actually making things happen, something that people have just been thinking about for long time. And I think that's that's really the spirit of the X Prize is to catalyze it. I think their first space X prize that they launched with, I heard something like the teams on average spent like easily four to five times more than the prize pot. The prize pot was just a catalyst to get things moving. Right, right. And I think they've been successful with that in the telerobot as well.
0: So what is the prize for? It's called Avatar X Prize. How do you win?
1: Yeah, it's the Avatar X Prize, and it's sponsored by ANA. So it's the A Avatar X Prize. And it's a $10 million prize pot for the team that can create the best telerobotic system that can perform these tasks interacting with a person at a distance. There's a lot of social need tasks, like assisting someone with their medication or uh, helping them around the house or, or finding someone in a disaster type environment. Mm-hmm. A lot of the tasks are centered around that. It includes touch and mobility. They're also talking about introducing latencies and communication problems into the scenarios. Mm-hmm. It's a challenging task, a lot of systems integration. Yeah. We're not directly involved in that because we're incredibly conflicted. One, ANA has helped with our project directly. Mm -hmm. We've also been helping with the XPRIZE directly. I personally know almost all of the judges and advisory staff. So we're kind of participating in a mechanism of like, hey guys, this is what we can do now. Let's see what you guys can innovate as you move forward. Yeah. I think uh, Avatar XPRIZE has a great way to network with teams that are doing things in your area. If you go to the XPRIZE website and sign up, I think you should be able to find out which teams are in and and, and accepting new members and get involved. In many ways, we're keeping an eye on the teams too. I mean, these could be great collaborators in the future as well for us. So yeah. we're looking to see who's coming out of this, doing amazing things as well.
0: I think on your website, you say that you're even offering the Tactile teller robot to competing teams, right? So do you, do you yeah. hope to see them actually using
1: your system? We've got some interest from people that are interested in that. I think this is probably something that will happen a year or two from now when they get closer to the finals Mm -hmm. because of the cost. There's definitely teams interested in, in working on that hardware and focusing on other components. So we've done some amazing things with manual dexterity, and it'd be great to use that and have the winning teams Push that forward, and that's another reason why we aren't competing too. This is hardware commercially available. Uh, whether they want the whole system or individual subcomponents, we're very supportive of these teams and what they need to be successful.
0: All right. Well, we've been going a while. Is there any final remarks you want to make?
1: Uh, thanks for having me uh, I'd like to give a special shout out to my kids Linda and Teddy who I hope are listening right now uh, it's always great chatting with you you're one of my favorite people I like I like the way that you can blend science and art and it's such a necessary thing that we need more people that can do that well so I've always appreciated that
0: thanks Jeremy do, so that's very kind
1: Always great to see you. And uh, yeah, if we come up with new stuff, let's do this again.
0: Yeah. And maybe even recording a podcast with teleoperated robots one day.
1: Maybe. That, <laughs> that could, could be, be cool. the future. That could be cool. <laughs> All
0: right, Jeremy, take care.
1: Same to you. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find me online at davebirnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at DaveBirnbaum.com. Beats by IllyMC The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2020, Dave Birnbaum.